I want to go ahead and encourage you, if you've got your Bibles, turn with me to Revelation chapter 4. We're going to be reading the entire chapter this morning. Um, And if you would, please stand with me out of respect for God's Word. I want to go ahead and invite Jackie up to read for us. Uh, Like I said, we're going to be reading chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. If you're new to Central and you're like, why are we standing? We stand um, when we're able to do so out of respect for God's Word because we're reminded of His authority over us. We want to be under His Word as we listen this morning. And so, Jackie, I'll go ahead and pass it off to you, sister. Thank you. Good morning. After Revelation 4, 1 through 11, after this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven, with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper, and carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were twenty-four thrones, and seated on the thrones were twenty-four elders, clothed in white garments and with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder, and before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne, there was, there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. <coughs> And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around them and within. And day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, The 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Amen. Jackie, thank you so much. Church, just pray with me. Father, um, I just pray these words uh, back to you. Worthy are you, Lord God, to receive glory and honor and power. You created all things, and by your will, they exist, and they were created. Father, as I come to this text, and as we look at this text, like it's just, there's so much here. And, And so I know that my words are going to fail to be able to communicate all of the glories that are represented here as we look into heaven and see your throne room. And so, uh, Lord, I just pray you'd speak in spite of me, speak through me. Father, I pray for all of us that our eyes would be a little bit more open to see the glories of your throne room. And Lord, I just pray you'd be with us this morning, that you'd be present with us right here in this space, in this room, with those that are watching online. Uh, Father, I pray that you would help them to be able to focus in in the next few moments to hear, because we know that space and time doesn't matter to you. Like, you can be just as present with brothers and sisters that are there as you are with us here. But Lord, be with us now. 
I pray and ask these things in your name. Amen. So, the book of Revelation, it's interesting when you come to it, um, you will easily find or find all over the place sermon series on the first several chapters of the book of Revelation. But usually what happens when someone is going into study Revelation is the sermon series stops after Revelation chapter 3. Because after the letters to the seven churches, things get just a little bit more complicated. Um, and you get a lot more imagery, you get a lot of different things, but we are going to continue to go forward because there are some amazing things in this text. There's amazing things for you and for me, not to just hear, to change the way we see God or theology, but things for us to keep, things for us to walk in. And so this is the beauty of Revelation, and so so excited to jump into that, and as even uh, in Revelation, there seems to be like this transition because we get this kind of transitionary statement in the first section of chapter 4, where we, heard, we hear this word, Behold, a door is standing open in heaven. Now, we need, to, we need to start there. Like, that's a big deal. A door is open to heaven. Like, there's, there's some doors we expect to be closed, isn't there? Well, I'll give you an analogy, and, and imagine this with me. I, I had an opportunity to go to Washington, D.C. last year, and while I was there, um, our last day, we went down to see some of the, the buildings and stuff that were down um, by the Capitol and stuff, and we got to go see the White House. Now, we didn't get to go into the White House. I know they do different tours and stuff for the White House, but we didn't have time to do that. But I want you to imagine that you went on a tour into the White House, and, and you're going through the White House, and you're seeing you know, where the president eats, and you're seeing all the historical components of what's there and what it represents, and rooms where decisions are made, and all of the different things that are present in that space. And imagine you're walking um, through the White House, and your tour guide looks at you and says, hey, you see that door down there? Like, the, that door, that's the Oval Office. And right now, the president's in there, and he's meeting with all his advisors, and they're talking about all kinds of different things, and they're making all kinds of different decisions. Like, that's a door we expect to be closed, right? Like, we don't expect to be able to see into that door. But imagine with me that you're walking past that hallway, and suddenly you hear a door open, and and it does open, what are you going to do? You're going to be like, Who, who's in there? Like, what's going on? Like, what are they talking about? Like, I, I do that when I walk by people's hotel rooms. I know that makes me creepy, but right? Like, you, you, the door opens, and you, like, look in. You're like, hey, I wonder what their room's like. And imagine like, you're in the White House, and that door opens to you, and now you can see inside of what is in that door. Like, like, just think about what that moment would be like. Like, seeing the president, he's in there, he's talking to generals or secretary of state or whoever that is. And you want to want to see what's in there. Now, now, take it a step further. Now, not only does the door open, but you're about to pass by and someone looks at you and says, hey, you, you, wait, me? Yeah, you, come in here. I, I want to show you something. I, like, imagine what that'd be like. Imagine what you'd feel like. What we're seeing in Revelation is that on an entirely different level. Like an entirely different level. We are seeing something profound. The door of heaven has been opened up to us. And not only has it been opened up to us, but we've been invited into that space. Now here's a couple of truths that we need to anchor ourselves to when we see that. Some things that I think we know in our heads, maybe intellectually, but we don't really think all that much about. The first and foremost is this. Heaven is 
real. That sounds like a really common sense statement, but sometimes we forget that, don't we? Heaven is real. It exists. What we see with our eyes in this day and age is not the full extent of the created universe. Like when you go to the Grand Canyon, that's beautiful and amazing, but that is not the full extent of all of God's creation. There is a spiritual realm. There is a spiritual reality that's going on all around us. It exists and it's parallel to ours. There are beings in heaven who, have, who are conscious, who make decisions. They're there. There's decisions being made. There's powers at work. And the best part about it is it's not disconnected from us. It's not far off. Like There's just a door that needs to be open to it for us. Like It's here. So we need to be reminded that heaven is real. We also need to see that what happens in heaven affects what we experience here, doesn't it? So we oftentimes think in terms of cause and effect. We know that to be the case. But we always think in terms of physics, right? Like if I pick up this water ball and throw it, that you either need to dodge it or catch it. Like that's cause and effect. Like that's the way it works. But here's the thing. It works that way in heaven too. Like for example, when you pray, it affects things that are going on in heaven. When, when something happens in heaven, it affects what is happening here in very real ways that you and I can experience and feel and see, even though we don't always attribute it to things that are going on spiritually. Wonderful story. It's one of my favorite ones in the Bible. It's in 2 Kings. And if you've never read it, there's a prophet named Elisha. And Elisha has been um, giving all kinds of prophecies against the kingdom of Syria. And Elisha is in this city with his servant, and the king of Syria has sent his entire army to kill Elisha because he's been such a pain in his neck. And Elisha gets up, and he looks out into the city, out of the city, and he sees the Syrian army out in the, the mountain, outside the city. And he's just like, oh, that's cool. And the servant sees this army and is like, why are you so calm? Like, what's, what's wrong with you? Like, they're here for you. And if you remember the story, what happens? Elijah, Elisha says, oh, let me, let me pray. And he prays and asks the Lord to open up the eyes of his servant. And the Lord opens up the eyes of his servant. And what does the servant see but an army of flaming chariots? See, what's the most real thing in that moment? When Elisha is delivered from that Syrian army, it's the work of heaven that does the deliverance. But without his eyes being open to it, he would have just thought it was a coincidence or something else that happened. But no, heaven affects what goes on here. Brothers and sisters, there's spiritual stuff going on all over the place. That's why we pray before you all come into this place that the, that the enemy would be bound from here. Like what happens in heaven has effect here. But this also leads us to the next point. Heaven is something that our eyes need to be open to. It's not a place that we can just find. It's not a place that we can just go. It's there. They can see us. They can engage us. They can have effect upon us. But to, uh, for us to see them, for us to see the spiritual realm, our eyes need to be open to it. Thanks to the Enlightenment, most of us simply believe that everything that we can know and experience is rooted in the physical. What we can touch, what we can feel, what we can see, what we can test. And I'll be honest with you, I think that that's tragic and it's a dangerous, false teaching. 
Because there's so much more than just what we can feel and touch. And I'm super grateful for what's come out of uh, the Enlightenment and all of the things that have come out of us understanding and, and, and engaging with the physical world in the way that it has. But there is something far more powerful than the physical. And it is the spiritual. Heaven is more powerful than the most devastating nuclear weapon we could ever design. Heaven is the greatest reality. Now, we get into this text, and we see this. The door's been opened. And so now we see heaven is real. We see that it has effects upon things that are going on here. John's eyes have been opened to it, and John himself is now helping our eyes be open to it. And then comes the second statement, and the second statement comes there in Revelation 4, 2. It says, At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated upon the throne. What does he see? He sees a throne. I believe this is one of the most, one of two, one or two of the most important statements in the entire book of Revelation. Behold a throne. In this place of ultimate reality, there is an ultimate power. There is an ultimate authority. Let me say that again. In this place of ultimate reality, there is an ultimate power and an ultimate authority. And he sits upon a throne. This becomes massively important for us. The word throne, the idea of a throne, is mentioned 62 times in the New Testament. 47 of those 62 times are in the book of Revelation. 40 of those 47 refer directly to the throne room we are about to look at. Jesus is making a point to John and to us to ensure that we do not lose sight of the throne. As we look at what's going on in this book, as we look at what's going on in our world, as we look at what goes on in our own lives and in history, we can never lose sight of the throne room. The throne and the one who sits upon it. So we look at the throne this morning. So what are some of the truths that we find when we look upon the throne room? The first truth is this. He is at the center of it all. He's at the center of it all. This is the most unman-centered vision, I think, in the Bible. And there's a lot of them. But here you have a picture of the throne, and you have all these people around the throne. All right? You have the 24 elders, and you say, well, who are the 24 elders? Well, most scholars believe that either it's a spiritual representation um, or it's a symbolical representation of all of God's people, the 12 tribes of Israel before in the Old Testament and the 12 apostles. So when you hear the 12 elders, at some level, they represent all of God's people and they are around the throne and they're subservient to the throne. They bow before the throne. They cast their crowns before the throne. But it's not just that. We also see these four living creatures. And those four are often and seen, and most, again, scholars see that they're representative of all of creation. You've got the lion, you've got the ox, you've got the eagle, you've got man, and they're covered in eyes. And when you look at what that symbolizes, it symbolizes some form of the Spirit of God, because we'll see that in next week when we look at Revelation 5. And so here's all of creation, living creation that has this breath of life in it, and they too are around the throne. There's four, because four oftentimes represents completion in creation. Four winds, four corners of the earth. 
And so right here in this picture, you see everyone surrounded around the throne, looking to the throne. The throne is the center of everything that is seen and everything that is unseen. The one seated on this throne holds absolute power. And I love how Vern Poythros puts it in his book, The Returning King. He says, as creator, God has absolute mastery. And I just stop, think about what that means. He has absolute mastery. He has absolute mastery, ownership, and control over what he has created. In creation, every speck, every atom, every detail of pattern, the very being of everything is derived from the hand of God. Like, do you walk a day in your life without thinking about that reality? I do all the time. That is the truth, and that is the reality. This is one of the most powerful pieces for us to be reminded of and even for the people in the first century, like it would have been a, a massive component of like political resistance because in a day and age where you think about kings and thrones, like they're seeing the only king and the only throne that matters. He is the center of everything. We are not. We are not in the, in the middle of that picture. And it's good for us to be reminded of that. There is one throne, and you are either in opposition to his throne or you are under his throne. And under his grace. Which leads to the next truth. He remains unthreatened. Verse 2 and 3 show a king at ease. He is seated. He is unworried. Earthly powers, they come and they go. We all know the names of Alexander the Great and Julius Caesar and Queen Victoria. We know the names of Adolf Hitler and Saddam Hussein and Pope John Paul II. All of them have come and they've gone. They all have had their day, and they've all fallen. Their thrones were handed to someone else or fell completely, while this one sits unthreatened, unconcerned, sovereign. He's unthreatened. Not only is he unthreatened by what goes on in this world, but he has an effect on what goes on even within the kings of this world. So Proverbs 21.1 says, The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. So when you see kings making decisions in our nations, in our world, God is in the hands. He's in the midst of that. He is steering and stirring and moving to accomplish his purposes in this world. For the believer, and we are to be reminded that while we remain, or while, while, that we remain unthreatened as well, because we are His, and because His throne remains unthreatened, He sits upon it, unmoved, no matter what turmoil we see in our world, no matter what turmoil we see in our lives. All creation, all the elders, cry, in Revelation chapter four, verse eight: "Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty." We said that so many times this morning already. Holy, holy, holy is repeated three times because three means that, that perfect completion. He is completely unlike us. He is completely set apart, completely unique. He is, he is fully and completely unlike anything else in this world. There is no other person. There is no other authority, no other king. He's unique. He sat on his throne when Nero was burning Christians in Rome. 
he still sits on his throne when someone like Putin decides to invade in Ukraine. He will continue to sit, whatever comes. And I know that can be hard for us because we can ask the question, like, why? Why would you allow such things to happen? I, I think John and the, the, the people in the first century would have had the same questions, like, how long, O oh Lord? How long are you going to wait? Like, this stuff seems bad. These emperors, these kings, all the stuff that's going on in the world seems like a challenge. And yet, he sits. Now, we know in Scripture, and we'll see in Revelation, that he continues to sit because he's being patient so that more would come into his kingdom. But nonetheless, he sits. But brothers and sisters, there will be a day when he will rouse himself to stand. And when he does, his kingdom will be fully completed and realized. We have the images of flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder reminding us that even now he is bringing judgment in his power and might even while he sits on the throne. We also see that his nature demands worship. His nature demands worship. Everything bows to his throne. Sometimes you read something that has just a way of articulating it in a way you never could, and that's something that Nancy Guthrie was able to do in her book, Blessed, and I love how she says it. She says, to worship is to let the worth and wonder of God sink in so that you respond in a wholehearted reorientation of your life. What used to be valuable becomes worthless. What used, to be, what used to seem insignificant or optional becomes of ultimate significance and of utmost importance. Seeing what God is worth and giving him the glory and honor he is worthy of, that is worship. That's worship. When we get to stand and we get to sing songs, like that's certainly worship, but that's a fraction of what worship. Worship is all of our lives in relation to the throne. Because we've seen the throne. And so we should bend our lives to that. We also see his throne is before the sea. In verse 6, we see the throne before a glassy sea. Now, I know for a lot of us that doesn't mean a lot, but in the Old Testament, the sea is often representative of chaos and evil and darkness and the unknown. We see the Red Sea was representative of the obstacle of God's people or to God's people in Israel and their freedom. We see the sea represented in, in Isaiah as something to be avoided and, and, and saved from. We see in Isaiah the Leviathan, the dragon, stirring and churning the sea and killed ultimately with the, sea, with the sword. We see in the book of Revelation later on, we see a great beast coming out of the sea. In chapter 15, we see God's people standing at the edge of a glassy sea, singing a new song, just like the people of Exodus did after they passed through the Red Sea and all the threats were gone. They sang a new song. We see in Revelation 21, we're, we're told in Revelation 21 that in the new heaven and no earth, there is no sea. And I don't believe that means there's no water. It's representative and reminder, there is no longer any chaos, no longer any evil, no longer any threat to God's creation. It's all gone. His throne sits before a still sea. I believe this vision should help the people of God see that just as Jesus was able to calm the sea of Galilee, God's throne sits before a completely stilled sea. There is no churning. There is no beast there is nothing but stillness. Nothing but stillness. What causes us such angst and hardship here, when life feels so out of control and terrifying, we are to be reminded of the throne before a glassy sea. 
And we should be reminded that in the midst of it all, he will also be faithful. The rainbow, it's not just a colorful picture of his power. It's to remind us of something. It's supposed to remind us of God's faithfulness to his promises and his covenant, not only to his people, but to all of creation. Go all the way back to Genesis chapter 9 when Noah came out of the ark. Remember, the flood comes and destroys everybody. Noah comes out of the ark, and he sees a rainbow in the sky, and God tells him what that rainbow is intended to give him. And this is what he says. This is a sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you. For all future generations, I have set my bow in the cloud, and that shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth, and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh, and the water shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. Notice in this text, he says he's making this covenant between Noah and himself and every living creature for all future generations. God cares about his creation and God has made a covenant in that space as well. And this is massively important for us. He is the creator of all things and by his will they exist and they were created just as the song sings in chapter 4 verse 11. God is going to make his people and his creation eternally secure from the threat of the destruction of evil. He doesn't say that he's just going to make all new things. He says he's going to make all things new. They're going to be refined and purified and glorified. But he is going to be faithful to his covenant. Listen, this should, rem- this sh- this should make us feel secure. Like, he is wrapped around his promises. Like, like there in the throne, throne room, before his face, always are his promises to all of creation, to fulfill his purposes. Like that is a beautiful promise for us. When things look like they're going terrible in our lives, like that is secure. And that's what this image is to remind us of. Living our lives in this truth should give us peace. It should give us peace. I'll go back to the White House analogy just for a second. I just want you to imagine if you were, uh, I don't know, living in this country during World War II and you're hearing all the rumors of, of, of Germany taking over this country and then that country and all the new technologies they're putting together and how difficult it is to defeat the Nazis and, and you're feeling all kinds of panic. Imagine if you were to go into the White House and see Franklin Roosevelt and he was just sitting there drinking tea and you're like, whoa, aren't you like stressed? Well, you know, I, I know. I know what's going on. I, I know what's going on. Well, don't you know about the economic challenges in our country? I, I do, but I know what's going on. Don't you know that they're, they're creating nuclear weapons? Yeah, I, I do. We've got generals that are aware of that. And he's just at peace. Like, listen, Franklin Roosevelt didn't know anything. God knows it all. Like, he knows it all. Like, so when you think about your peace, where does it come from? Does it come from your circumstance? Or does it come from the reminder, he is on the throne? You're not going to come to him and be like, uh, God, uh, did you see that inflation's gone up 40%? You're not surprising him. And when you go to him, they be like, hey, did you just hear the new news, Lord, that, that Iran looks like they're even closer now to a nuclear weapon than they ever have been before? He's not like, oh, thank you so much for bringing that to my attention. This is not what God is doing. When you go to the slums like I just did in Kenya and you're looking at the suffering and the hardship, I'm not going to the Lord and be like, oh God, just in case you didn't see this. He's like, I I know. I know. 
I know. These are profound truths for us. And they should keep us at rest and anchor us to hope. But, as we've said so many times in this sermon series, like this isn't just about giving us more knowledge. The question is for you and for me as we go about our day, like how do we keep this? How do we, how do we walk in this? What does this mean for us on Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday and Friday? For those of you who are on spring break or looking for spring break, like what does this mean for you and for me? Well, one, I think it means this. We should reorient our lives to serve him who sits upon the throne. That's the first way we can keep it. We reorient our lives to serve he who sits on the throne. There should be one cry from our hearts all the time. And it's a cry similar to Psalm 115.1. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. Not to me, but to you. My money, not to me. My house, not to me. My car, not to me. My health, not to me. My kids, not to me, but to you. Like, that's what's important. Like, everything to you. We decrease, he increases. It's no longer I who lives, it's Christ who lives in me. You want to look at what it is that we can do as Christians to keep what we're seeing in Revelation chapter 4. It's to reorient our lives to his throne room in complete worship, not to us, but to you, O Lord. And listen, none of us in this room walk this out perfectly. Like, there's not a single person in this room that could say that we live our life fully like this, and neither could the people in John's day. That's why we come to the table every week. That's why we need his mercy and his grace. But here's my question. Are we content with how we live our lives in relation to the truth of his throne? Are you content with how you live your life in relation to the truth of his throne? Like, don't be discouraged. We have his promise. We have his mercy. We have his grace. We've been given a chance to look into heaven and to see. He wants us to see so that we can reorient our lives to that truth. But we should be spending our lives to serve that king now. Because one day, we'll all stand before the same throne. Won't that be a day? But we have an opportunity now to serve. But this begs the question, do you want a king over your life today? Like right now, do you want a king over your life? A king to serve? That's a big question. Like, I think most of us would say, I absolutely want the king when I get that phone call about cancer. I absolutely want that king when I lose my job. I absolutely want that king when 9-11 happens or a pandemic happens. But do you want the king when everything is going good in your life? That's a big question, isn't it? That's a hard question. Like, do you want the king to rule over you? And are you offering yourself to him in worship for who he is and his nature when everything is great and when everything is well, when you've got money in the bank and your health is strong? See, see, oftentimes, like, we have no problem running to the king when we need him. But this king demands loyalty and allegiance always. So will we reorient our lives to worship him? 
part of what Revelation is going to show us is that while many of these things live in our lives and are part of our lives, sickness, terrorism, wars and rumors of wars, financial challenges, all kinds of different things. Like, listen, those things are not the real threat to God's people. Like, I know they feel big. I know they feel awful, and none of us like them. And, man, they can, they can call all kinds of challenges in our lives. And we weep over those things, but those things, they're not the real threat. The real threat is the world, our flesh, death, and a dragon who wants us. Like, that's the real threat. And we have the one who sits upon the throne who's already defeated it all. So let's, as his people, serve him. Let's shift our eyes onto his throne, not away from his throne. So if you want to keep these things, reorient your life. Follow the king. Secondly, we can hallow the name of the one who sits upon the throne. Again, Nancy Guthrie says this, think of all the ways people talk about God in our world. I'm going to stop there. Just think about it for a second. Think about all the ways people talk about God in this world right now. God's name is uttered in profanity and blasphemy and obscenity and hypocrisy and insincerity. But in heaven, his holy name is hallowed. It is honored, it is praised, it is exalted and glorified without interruption and without end. How do you use his name? How do you respond when other people use his name in profanity? And we say, well, that's, that's not that big of a deal, right? It's not that big of a deal. Like some of y'all students, like they're in this space right now, you're teenagers. I know how much OMG is in your, in your text streams. Do you have any idea what you're actually saying when you text that? That is the name of the one who sits upon the throne, It is the name of the one who has bought you and redeemed you and saved you and created you. It is not an expletive. Like when we see it in movies and we see it in TV and we see people around us crying out Jesus' name as a curse word, how do you respond? Are you okay with that? Will you just keep eating popcorn? Like his name is to be hallowed. How can you pray? Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, while we laugh when people make a joke of his name. Now, you want to keep his name? Let's, as a church, make sure that we're hallowing his name. Let's make sure that we're treating his name with the respect that it deserves. This is one tiny, small thing that we can and should do as God's people. Profanity and blasphemy to the one who sits upon the throne. Man, something is so important for us. And it's not only with our words, it's also with our lives. Like for all of us in this place right now who have claimed Jesus as our Savior, we bear the name of Jesus, don't we? We're Christians, are we not? That's what we call it. We call it Christians. And I know this feels weighty, especially after looking at the throne, but every single word we speak, every action that we take or don't take, every flip of a finger, Every dollar spent says something about the name you bear to those who are watching you. That's that's big. It says something about the name that 
that we bear. Like if you go to work and you let your mouth just run with every form of coarse joking and poor language and bad language and you just let those things fly and then you try to tell someone about the love of Jesus, do you think that your testimony means anything? Like that's a big deal. Like if you go off in a rage and anger against somebody and then you say, well, I'm a Christian and Jesus is my Savior and I depend upon Jesus, you think that means anything for us? Listen, and my point in this is not to tell any of us, like, oh man, like I feel terrible. None of us are perfect at this. I'm just going to keep saying that over and over again. Like, none of us are perfect at it. All of us struggle in these things. All of us are broken in these things. But this is the way that we can be more faithful once we've seen the throne room, is to be mindful of how we bear the name of that one who sits upon the throne. Is, it in, is, is, is how you live your life in conjunction with his holiness and beauty and might and goodness this is, this is big for us. And so when you're there, and man, you slip up, and you, you say something, and you, you need to, you, you tell people, like, I shouldn't have said that. That was not right of me. When you watch those things, or you do those things, or you act in those ways that are not appropriate for those who bear the name of Jesus, you confess those things, and you find forgiveness and salvation for sure. But don't stay in them. Push against it. Next. We need to preach the truth to our hearts and to the world. The world daily calls God's sovereignty into question, doesn't it? Calls his goodness into question. You feel it, I feel it. You've had those moments where you're like, is God really good? Like you hear the whispers in your head. The truth is, That what is in heaven is not fully here. That's why we pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's not that God is is being thwarted. It's just that we're waiting for him to bring it to full completion. His glory has not been fully manifested over this whole earth like Habakkuk Habakkuk tells us it will be one day. We still see wickedness. We still see injustice. Bombs still fall. Children still get sick. There's still slums in India, slums in Kenya. Cancer still strikes us. Drugs and alcohol, they still rob people of life. Like these things are all there with us. And for John's first century readers, same thing. Marriages still fell apart. Miscarriages still happen. Like all this stuff is still here. Question is, is he on the throne? Because the enemy would take, want to take every one of those things and make you question it. Is he really still on the throne? Like I know you've been struggling with infertility for all these years. Is, is he really on the throne? Is he really for you, not against you? Like, I I know you've had this issue. Is he really on the throne? Listen, yes, he is, and he's delaying, and we need to be crying out, God, fix it, take care of it. Maranatha, come, Lord Jesus, come. But with this reality now, seen in every single thing, we should also be able to say at the end of every statement, You have cancer? He still sits on the throne. Lose your job? He still sits on the throne. If I ever get that phone call that says, hey, Darren, like your test came back negative, I want to weep and I want to be 
sad for that, but he still sits on the throne. If I ever get the phone call that some of you have had that you've lost a loved one, you're going to weep and you're going to grieve, but we also want to be the people who stay, but he still sits on the throne. Anchored to it, reminded of it, when stuff happens in the news, when stuff happens at Turkey or when whatever it is that's going on, we want to hear those things and be able to say, but he still sits on the throne. But he still sits on the throne. Because we're going to see things get better, brothers and sisters. You think you've seen the last law that, that wants to make same-sex marriage like legal? Like, it's not going to get better. But he still sits on the throne. He still sits on the throne. It doesn't matter who gets elected in the 2024 election. He still, well, it matters, but you know what I'm saying. I'm not saying don't vote, go vote. But he still sits on the throne. If another pandemic comes around the corner, like, he still sits on the throne. This is not a truth to simply remind ourselves so that we have false hope or for us as his people to hunker down. This is a truth that, should rem- that, that we should constantly have to remind ourselves of and remind the world of that he still sits on the throne. We should gear up. We should run forward into the darkness to proclaim the gospel, to proclaim the good news, and remind those that are around that he still sits on the throne. That's why you need to be in community, brothers and sisters, because sometimes you're going to listen to some of those whispers, and you need brothers and sisters to say, hey, he still sits on the throne. I know it's hard, but he still sits on the throne. I've had times where I've had to preach that to myself, struggling with sin. Like, oh man, like I'm struggling, but you know what? He still sits on the throne and he's still faithful to his promises. He's still at the center. He sits before a glassy sea. Like, our God reigns. That's, that's enough, isn't it? Our God reigns. And he'll continue to reign. So my hope and my prayer as we end our time together this morning is that you are encouraged to understand the one who sits upon the throne. And as you walk out of this space this morning, that you are encouraged to keep that in a way that you now make efforts to reorient your life to that truth and that reality because it is real and it exists. And so we're just going to, here in a minute, we're going to sing a song. And uh, it's a song that is meant to remind us that he is the one who sits upon the throne. I want to invite you to just worship. I want to invite you to just ponder, to think, to be mindful of the one who has done all these things, even when we look around us and see sin and brokenness and wickedness and all those things. He reigns. He reigns. This song is a song that, uh, that's taken out of the book of Job. Job needed to be reminded of these truths. And he was when the Lord came to Job and started saying, where were you when I did this? Where were you when I did this? Sometimes we need to be reminded. And so I hope that this is encouragement to you. Father, I thank you for this morning. I'm personally thankful that you've given to us this image of your throne to be reminded of your power and your might to be reminded that you are the center of all things not us 
to be reminded that you sit, you're not threatened, to be reminded that, that ultimately you sit in front of a glassy sea, that there is going to be peace under your reign, to be reminded that you are faithful to your promises always, always we can trust you, to be reminded that nothing surprises you. There is no king like you, our God. So Lord, I pray that you would stir these things in our hearts, that you would anchor us as your people to these truths, and that we would live our lives in correct, correct relation to understanding that, with that in mind. So Lord, in the next couple of moments, just help us to see you even more clearly. I pray and ask in your name.